Hello, everyone, and welcome to Living in This Queer Body, a podcast about barriers to embodiment and how our collective body stories can bring us back to ourselves. I'm Asher Panjuris, and I'm, as always, honored to have you here. Thank you for tuning in. I have one announcement. I will be opening up a few spots for my ponder together sessions, which is essentially a way to um, work one-on-one with me and to kind of work through a question or something that is blocking you. What we do is you give me a sense of what that is prior to our session and then I give that some thought and then we talk about it together for an hour and they are really productive conversations. It's, it's um, very touching and I have a limited number of spots that are open. You can find out much more about that through my website or through the link in my Instagram bio. So I want to get on to our interview. Adrian, you are such a warm and open person and I really enjoyed talking with you. In this episode, we speak with Adrian Huard and we talk about Adrian's powerful discovery of pole dancing, the complexity of sobriety and harm reduction, the experience of learning to love her body after struggling with body dysmorphia and disordered eating, Adrian sees this body nourishment as an expression of a connection to the land and a real fuck you to colonialism. We talk about much more. I hope you enjoy the conversation. And a little more about Adrian. Adrian Huard is a two-spirit Ashinaabekwe born and raised in so-called Winnipeg, Manitoba and registered at Kaukaching, First Nations, Fort Francis, Ontario. Huard graduated from Concordia University in 2018 and is currently attending OCAD University's graduate level criticism and curatorial practice program. She is on the planning committee for the upcoming Two-Spirit powwow happening on May 30th in Winnipeg, Manitoba. It will take place during Canada Pride, which is a nationwide pride celebration, and Adrian is really looking forward to high attendance this year. You can connect with Adrian on Instagram at Adrian, that's A-D-R-I-E-N-N-E underscore Loon, L-O-O-N. And on to my interview with the lovely and very inspiring Adrian Huard. Adrian, thank you for joining me and making the time to make this happen. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I'm happy to chat with you finally. Yeah. So I'd like to start each episode with a question and you can kind of take it wherever you'd like to. 
Could you talk a little bit about what your first associations are, memories are of being in a body or knowing what it meant to be in a body? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. I mean, I remember, I think it was also um, growing up with a twin sister. Oh, wow. And, you know, I, it's like understanding that even though we share the same genetic material, like 50%, because, um, because we're twins, uh, paternal, technically paternal twins anyway, but mm. that there's a body that exists that is not mine, but that mm. feel the same things and experience the same things that I can. And I, I still firmly believe that to this day, we still feel the same things. Mm. Um, yeah. So I guess, I guess that would be it. Um, and then of course, like, you know, as you get older, you kind of, you know, you kind of hit this age where you also start to be sexualized in a way. And for a lot of cis women like myself, you know, it happens pretty early. So then also understanding like what, trying to figure out what my relationship is to my body at that point as it changes, um, Mm -hmm. and how others see me, but so mm-hmm. I, I don't have like a definite age, but <laughs> yeah, most people don't. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it is like a, an evolving awareness and there are lots of memories I imagine really tied up with sharing experiences with your sister and, and kind of not necessarily feeling distinct, like that differentiation. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting, like, they say that twins, when they sleep in the same bed, they often will sleep in the same way that they sat in the womb, you know? And yeah, I know it's so sweet. I don't know how true that is, but, you know, it's like, it's just interesting to watch a body grow in relation to yours that's that's almost the same. And, and yeah, she's, she's mm. funny. I, I love her to death. Mm-hmm. And it's it's also interesting, like growing up and having memories and then wondering later on in life if these were dreams or if you made up these memories because, you know, how the human mind can just fabricate things. And so mm-hmm. it's like interesting checking in with her and being like, did that actually happen? And so in a way, it's like, you know, it's kind of like, uh, yeah, it's very grounding you know? Mm -hmm. I bet. Yeah. I mean, you know, this whole interview does not have to be about you and your sister, but I do, I am curious about how you told me before the interview that there are ways that you have really kind of had a complicated relationship to your body as, and, and nourishing your body and, um, kind of, body image stuff. And, and I'm curious, you know, certainly to hear about that, if you're experiencing that was somehow connected to having this, this twin, if in any way. Yeah, definitely. Oh, it's interesting. Like also that she does not identify as queer too. Uh Um, but it is interesting how, I guess how we perceive our bodies. Like we both eventually in our 20s ended up you know experiencing disordered eating and and like heavy body issues and Mm -hmm. um yeah and you know it kind of happened in relation to each other we were like a mirror and and almost in a way I think that we had 
perpetuated each other's because there's always that level of comparison that happens yeah, right. with your siblings, right? And especially twins. But so, um, yeah, she, I mean, I think we're both in very, very healthy relationships with our bodies now. Um, mm-hmm. We both sort of uh, had sought counseling and to her extent, she was uh, uh, in treatment for a while, but yeah, you know, it's like we find we have found different outlets to nourish our bodies and sort of cope with the like traumas that we have in our yeah. lives. And I think that, you know, moving, finding a way to move our bodies certainly helped, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I, I know that she had she had started pole dancing before I had, but she she never really picked it up as a hobby. I think she's more into like kickboxing now. But oh, yeah. um mm-hmm. but I had kind of I'd stuck with it and in a way, like by posting my progress on Instagram, it sort of like held me accountable to my experience, like to my to my progress, I guess. Let's talk about pole dancing because it it's a really it seems like it's a really powerful and important part of your life at this point. Yeah, definitely. Ooh, <laughs> my favorite topic. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I, um, it was great. I was living in Montreal at the time. So I guess this was um, about three years ago now. And uh, I was working in the service industry. I was working at this awful restaurant and it had, oh, it was just, it had, uh, like encouraged my substance abuse, you know, it was Mm. like, you know, the bartender was a drug dealer and everybody drank. And anyway, so, so I had decided to go sober, which started my five year long journey into sobriety at this point. But, Mm. um, yeah, but I was, uh, headhunted by a pole dance studio that I was, I was free like I was going to classes pretty frequently, but at that point they were like, come work with us. We're looking for a receptionist. And I mean, of course they couldn't offer the same amount of money as working in the service industry, but I took it because Uh my like physical and mental health was dying at this restaurant place. So, so I, I started working at this pole dance studio and my God, the community there, was so beautiful and so so inclusive and um Mm. body positive and sex positive and all the wonderful things and and I also had the ability to be at the studio like 24 7 I had all like I could access the studio at any point which was Mm. amazing so you know it'd be like times where friends and I would get together and just dance together and Mm. you know I like 2 (laughs) a.m which is really beautiful (laughs) yeah Um, yeah and so now I moved to Toronto for grad school and I found a studio that's also very body positive and um yeah there you know I think there's some openly like it's just it's it's such a beautiful inclusive community I mean it sounds amazing it's like what is it what do you find that it does for you in terms of like kind of repairing it's not, you know, I think that when you were talking before about, you know, you and your sister and, and eating disorders, first discovering eating disorders as a way of coping with trauma. 
that being one of the things that you found and substance abuse being another one. And, you know, there's lots of different things and some of them are more sustainable than others, right? I just would be curious to hear more about like what that kind of body positivity and inclusivity and also the the kind of particular form of movement and challenge that you're finding in pole dancing. Like what, what is, what, how do you think it's helping you kind of as a tool in terms of kind of navigating the effects of trauma? Hmm, That's a great question. I think originally I, I found it to be like an outlet to channel my energies into something that wasn't like substance abuse. You know, it was like, instead of, going out and spending all that Mm -hmm. money and coping in um, not so um, positive ways for me personally. Um, I would go pole dance for for a couple hours and I could see the way that my body changed and completely acknowledging, you know, the, um, I don't know, I just want to acknowledge like the, the, I don't want to say ableism, but you know, it's like, I am really lucky to have a body that moves in the way that it does, you know, I, I'm not limited. Mm-hmm. And so that is a privilege that I have. And I totally want to acknowledge that. Um, right. But it was yeah, a for this specific, for this specific outlet, you know, that you've discovered. Yeah. It, that you exactly. have your mobility. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. But yeah. So like things like watching my strength grow was very empowering. Like my arms would get big and I would hear that, or, you know, my arms are like a little bit more muscular and I've heard, you know, men say, Oh, well, you know, cis het men are like, Oh, I don't like women with big arms or muscles. And then you walk into the studio and we're all flexing and just like, fuck yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. yeah, that's, that is like, yeah, it's such a sexy feeling is feeling strong in a mm-hmm. like physically strong in a way. Um, and yeah. then I guess like, yeah, it's like a coping mechanism was like also like putting my half naked body on the internet and being okay with, you know, with all its beautiful perfections and imperfections. And when I mean imperfections, I mean like by Western like standards of beauty, you know? Yeah. And just sort of challenging myself in that way was incredibly empowering for someone who, you know, hasn't always loved their body or, you know, the way it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can we, I, yeah. I mean, I think it's like an amazing, a kind of amazing challenge that you set yourself up for, you know, to kind of move from having experienced trauma in your body to, you know, it just sounds like so much control. Like you feel in control of the circumstances that are helping you get stronger. You are being vulnerable, but you feel safe and you're being, you're being willing to be public about it. And that feels empowering. I mean, I think it's, it's just a really, I, I'd love to hear, I want to hear more about it, but I guess I, you know, I think it, it probably for the people listening, it would be helpful to hear a little bit about how you got to this place of um, kind of having pole dancing experience of that be so powerful, you know, like what came before? What came before? I mean, I like physically, I love to run. I love having Mm -hmm. 
a way of, of like dispersing my energy, I guess I, mm -hmm. I'm, I've like mild ADD. So like to have something that physically exhausts me is like, is good for yeah. me mentally and physically. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. but yeah, what came before? That's such a good question. Yeah. It's like, I've always admired people who, who could dance and move like that. And, um, I mean, even like I used to be an avid, like strip club goer. I used to love mm -hmm. it. I mean, I still do when I can get out, but, um, and I, I have in the past, like I have stripped before, um, I have participated in, in sex work as well. So it's like, it's not that it is something that is far away from me, you know, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. that kind of sex positivity. Yeah. I just wanted to, I guess, yeah, find a way that, that worked for me. That was, mm -hmm. I guess, accessible, more accessible. And, and yeah. It just sounds like you, you know, another dimension of what came before is the question of, you know, what in your life leading up to this moment has been, what, what experiences have you had that have been very disempowering, you know, around your body and very, have left you feeling shame and dysphoria and, and those kinds of feelings? Yeah. Oh man. I mean, I, 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 I've had also, I mean, to like add on the list of traumas, but you know, like being um, mistreated by cis men, mostly um, sexual assault, all that. So there is definitely a moment of feeling of losing control and feeling like you're out of body. Um, mm -hmm. And, and so I guess in a way it is like a form of, taking control again. And, you know, even in our society where, um, you know, women are so we're, we're very, we're, our bodies are overly monitored, right. We're hypersexualized, mm -hmm. but when we capitalize, capitalize on our sexuality, then, then we're seen as dangerous, you know, for taking that control back. Yeah. But yeah. in a way it's like a really beautiful like fuck you to heteropatriarchy and and even like even colonialism as like an indigenous woman oh man even just having like cis dudes um slide into my dms um it's it's just i it's something i i also heavily heavily uh monitor on on my instagram like if if there's like any cis men that follow me at all like i check them and often will block them just mm -hmm. because I don't feel comfortable with them in my space. Yeah. But, um, you know, yeah. And, and like, I've, when I was first starting out, like I had friends, well, not friends, acquaintances who would, who would comment on my body or other people's bodies in the video, both, both men and cis men and women. And, you know, it's, it's just makes you wonder, like just how our bodies are just so, so, overly surveyed you know? mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah I think I it's interesting because one thing I was going to ask you about was sort of like your intended audience and it sounds like you in some ways with Instagram are sort of curating your audience you know by blocking people that you don't want to be 
witnessing you. And that's also another really interesting form of, of control or just assertiveness around. Yeah. I mean, it, it sounds like you have a sense of who you would like to be, who you would choose to be performing for in some ways. Yes. And even though like my profile is not private and I understand that there are people who sort of will take a look and browse and that's fine. That's amazing. But as long as they don't find a way to contact me or, you know, I just, sure. I, if, if there is a gaze and I rather just not acknowledge it, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yeah, but it's wonderful. Like to have, I mostly have like now just like women and like gender variant trans, like two spirit folks reaching out with like encouragement or, you know, asking for advice on how to start up. It's like, yeah, it's really positive experience, I think. Yeah, that's really cool. I want to move away a little bit from this very empowering (laughs) narrative (laughs) to something that I think, you know, you, you spoke to me about prior to this interview that feels really connected actually to this empowering space that you've discovered and, and cultivated for yourself. But, you know, this, this idea of, or not idea, it's the reality of the crisis of missing and murdered Indigenous women, girl and two-spirit folks as kind of, in some ways, you know, you are very impacted by that awful Mm -hmm. reality. And if you feel comfortable talking about, you know, how that, talking a little bit about that and also talking about how that reality has shaped how you see yourself as an Indigenous queer person. Yeah, definitely. Talking about like women's bodies being policed. Mm -hmm. Indigenous women and two spirits bodies, I think are certainly like over policed, but, but completely disregarded by um, our nation um, of so-called Canada and the U S as well. But even just this national crisis leaves us almost believing that our bodies are broken or worthless, you know, like we're not considered um, important enough to even try to find or try Mm. to stop a national crisis. And so, so it leaves us with this embodied feeling of, of, of worthlessness. And so I feel like someone empowering their sexuality and, and, and loving their body is in a way connecting to our land and territory because the two are not separate. And so when we think of colonialism, we think of also like resource extraction and land. And so land is so deeply connected to our bodies. And, and so I just, I think mm-hmm. about, about, about that self-love as as also a giant like fuck you to colonialism and to MMIWG2S. And mm-hmm. yeah, and in a way I'm like coming back to myself. I'm returning to my body. I'm returning to to myself, I guess. <laughs> I don't know if that makes sense. <laughs> of course. Yeah. I mean, I think that it it certainly makes sense. I mean, I think it's I guess it seems like a, a real 
a really complicated challenge to come back to a self that is kind of was born into a system of colonialism and of, you know, you're, you were already born into this kind of epidemic or this national crisis, so to speak, right. In a way. And so it's like, I don't know. I mean, maybe this is getting very meta, but you know, I just, I wonder what it feels like for you. And you've described it a little bit about like feeling empowered and feeling in control and the self-love and acceptance and, um, but how it feels for you symbolically, maybe to kind of reclaim a, a self that has already been defined for you um, and, and how you felt like y- you were defined by the world outside of you, you know, growing up. Yeah, definitely. Growing up, you know, it's so funny. I remember, I think it was grade six. And I remember like, for a lot of native folks, like our skin tone can change so dramatically over the course of, of the year. Mm. Um, so like wintertime, I can get pretty pale, but during the summer, I just, I get so brown. My skin loves the sun. And, and I remember kids in school being like, Oh, well now you look, now you look native. You look more native now. And just being so aware, I guess also of my body as an indigenous young girl. Mm-hmm. And so growing up also, you know, I would slather on SPF 60. I'd wear hoodies so I could stay out of the sun. So I could just at least try to maintain some sort of like white privilege. But yeah, just acknowledging, I guess, like my acknowledging that I do have privilege when my skin tone does get lighter during the summer. Mm. But then also, I, I, I do firmly believe that that indigenous women are are also like heavily sexualized as well because you know the term if i may derogatory term squaw derived from this idea that indigenous women they fall outside of that sort of monogamous religious framework right that Mm -hmm was imposed on us during contact. And so when we, you know, when we aren't, when we don't portray this idea of like the good woman, you know, the good wife, then all of a sudden we're seen as sexual deviants, right? And then Mm -hmm. as a result, hypersexualized, which then comes into MMIW, GTS, right? Mm -hmm. So... So I guess like feeling that too. And I know my kin certainly have experiences with that as well. Mm. But yeah. yeah. And how does your, I mean, yeah. How does your, your queerness or your, you know, play into that? It's, it's, it's a D, you know, it's a quote unquote deviant sexuality in, in a way or in lots of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I just curious how that, how you feel as a, like an indigenous queer woman? Yeah. Especially as a queer woman. I mean, yeah, they're not, I, I, I would say like the reserve is still not a safe place for women, Mm. but it's also certainly not a safe place for, for two spirit folks. And Christianity is so deeply entwined 
in those beliefs on the reserve that that queerness is is such a negative thing and even within our communities and you know there's a lot of two-spirit folks who don't feel comfortable going to ceremonies because they're often misgendered they experience violence because you know they're not that like warrior cis man you know what I mean it's like yeah you know I was really lucky to have a strong feminist mother mm. um, who's such, she's like a pit bull. Like I just, I was so incredibly lucky to grow up having such an amazing mom. I still am lucky. My goodness, she's still around. Mm. But, um, but you know, even coming out to her and she knew, like she, she knew. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was like, <laughs> you know, I, yeah, I was like, I remember being in grade school and just wanting to wear like, you know, two inch heels and to like take off strings of beads that would like in front of your doorway. Do you remember like in the nineties where they'd have those like oh, strings yeah. of beads and like, I'd like take them off and wrap them around my waist. Like I just wanted to be so extra. And, <laughs> and you know what I mean? Not like that's a signifier of queerness, but I think like she really supported us and our sexuality and our bodies which I guess is why I'm here today and celebrating it the way that I am. Absolutely. Yeah. I guess that's in part what you're returning to is that feeling of, yeah, like it's, it's accepted, it's empowering, it's okay. And you had some kind of model for that, um, Mm -hmm. that, that sounds like it was extremely critical given the the kind of way that these cultural um, systems have been just really have like decimated people's lives around queerness, indigeneity, all of these, these forces. And, and yet you, you know, I mean, maybe because of that, or maybe not, but you know, you, you are able to participate in ceremony Mm -hmm. or you have found yourself, you know, choosing to. Yes, definitely. I mean, Mm -hmm. I think I am, I do have priv- like cis privilege as well. And yep. um, so of course, like I'm, I'm given already a role and a space within ceremony and not mm-hmm. saying that it is equal at all. There are some ceremonies that, um, or some, some people within ceremony who won't allow women to participate. They often will sit on the side still. If they're on their moon time, like menstruating, they mm-hmm. are considered they they won't be allowed in ceremony as well. They'll apparently make the community sick, you know, and it's, it's such a a backwards view. And so then also participating in, in ceremonies and lodges that do allow women to come in during their moon time and, and, and nobody gets sick. It's just, it's such a deeply Christianized perspective that Mm. menstruation is dirty and wrong. Right. So I have found space in ceremony and I'm, I'm forever lucky for that. But I do, I do feel for my kin who don't necessarily yes. have that space. Right. So maybe you could tell the audience a little bit about sort of what you, we've talked a lot about your past and we've talked a lot about your current pole dancing life, life as a pole dancer. Um, but what else do you do with your life professionally and otherwise? Oh, um, I'm currently enrolled in an MFA, a master's of fine arts program in, uh, criticism and curatorial art practice, um, Mm -hmm. at OCAD university in Toronto. So I'm in my second year of my master's and 
currently um, writing my thesis, which is very fun. Um, cool. yeah. yeah. So that's, that's what I do. Um, uh-huh. I also work and, um, there are always projects on the side, like this conference that I'm at. And I also have a curatorial collective mm. called Kajit. And it's between uh, Toronto and Montreal. Um, so it's with my co-curator, Lindsay Nixon, and often my best friend, Dana Danger. And so between basically the three of us, we talk about, um, we sort of engage with Indigenous sex, gender, sexuality um, within our, our uh, curatorial practice. Wow. Cool. Yeah. Okay. I love hearing about that. Yeah. So in terms of other things, I guess, just curious, like what other things in your, in your daily life have you found that also help sustain you, um, in your busy life and, you know, kind of trying to, it sounds like you, you mentioned that you're in, did you say you're five of sobriety? Yes. Yes, I am. Of course, mm-hmm. on and off, it's a rocky road. But <laughs> okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, yeah. Um, day to day, definitely, of course, pole dancing, but I find ways also to like take time to self care, um, um, ways to nourish my body as mm-hmm. well. Yeah. As I mentioned, I like to run. I'm always reaching out to kin and, and, um, my deep, like two spirit relationships that mm. just like, they really keep me going. What else? Like, I don't know. Should I say this? Like I love to masturbate <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> because like self-love is also a way of like coming back to body yeah. as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It yeah, seems I like w- you're, Oh, go ahead. Oh no. Continue. Well, I just, you know, I'm just thinking about like your trajectory and how it, it does seem like it kind of comes back to that, you know, a lot, like it, it really is. There's a way that you come back to this idea of what it takes to nourish yourself. You know, you've used that word several times and I, I really like that word, not just because I, you know, work in the field of eating disorders and like think that that's an important concept, but learning what it takes to nourish yourself, like more, like more holistically, like there's so many things. Masturbation is one of the things that helps you to nourish yourself, right? You know, it's like nourishing yourself with self-love and, um, you know, that there's just a lot of dimensions to that, that I think can overwhelm people, but also we learn about over time and as we learn about ourselves. And I imagine that like your journey with sobriety has led to different, making different choices about what constitutes self-care, you know? Yes, definitely. Definitely. And like also acknowledging too that, um, sobriety doesn't make you a better person as well you know yeah like yeah yeah. because like even you know there Mm -hmm. are ceremonial people as well who will talk about this idea of the red road being a path to sobriety but they're also like they can be not great people as well right and Mm -hmm. so I love people who um struggle with addictions and um who maybe drink casually like I I don't want to judge them for the way that they navigate their life, but also their coping mechanisms as well. Yeah, Yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, that there's not, you're you're not like saying there's a, 
I think it's important actually to, to kind of make that distinction around like it being a kind of a moral, a moral choice. Right. And in some ways it's just what maybe is you're experimenting with and what's working for you right now and has made certain is made certain things more possible in your life right now. Um, and you're focusing on other things. Yeah. I mean, I'd love to be able to get to a point where I can, uh, the dream would be to like travel, to be able to kind of, um, experience different styles of dancing as well. Mm. I've, um, you know, it's funny, like I'm so deeply entrenched in this academic world, Yeah, but I think about like going back to stripping as mm-hmm. well, because I do like miss that kind of empowerment and also like the money. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. like, and I just wish that there was like a way to exist in this duality of, of celebrating that kind of sex work, but then also existing within the institution, mm-hmm. which I do believe that there is a way to do that. But yeah, you're, um, you're figuring it out as you go along because there isn't actually a, a predetermined way. Um, exactly. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's an understatement, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds that I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And for anyone out there listening, if you have any ideas or have had experience bridging academia with, um, I don't know, stripping sex work, you know, it's they're they're kind of very interesting interrelated worlds when they're brought together, I think. And it sounds like they're they both have served like very important purposes for you. Last question is how can people actually find out about you and what you do? Um, I feel like Instagram is like my best platform. Yep. Um, which you can follow me at Adrian underscore loon. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Or is it Adrian dot loon? No, it's Adrian underscore loon. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. We'll do some fact checking. Um, sure. cool. <laughs> That sounds great. Yeah, you can definitely see um, some videos and some very impressive videos about what we've been talking about today. So, um, Adrian, thank you so much for taking the time while you're traveling um, to to speak with me and our audience. And I I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much, Asher. I I really appreciate having this conversation. Maybe.